I love Jared Allen. Fear the frog. How with the right hand. That's our boy Bob Schmidt. <laughs> Jared Allen with authority. This is the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cleveland Cavaliers and NBA podcast with Bob Schmidt. Nobody's going to subscribe. Welcome in to the Fear the Fro podcast, episode number eight. Creeping ever closer to training camp, which then puts us ever closer to preseason, which then puts us right around the corner from game action. Now, I will say, this is episode number eight. Episode number one debuted on August 11th. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to launch a Cavs podcast. I'm going to do it a week after all the exciting news of free agency is over. So admittedly, the timing is suspect, but I wanted to work out some kinks, get some momentum going. I am Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio. The Fear of the Fro pod is on all the various uh, social media outlets, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Fear the Fro pod, the website, fropod.com. Please follow us, subscribe to the podcast, review it, like it, don't like it. But uh, if you don't like it, just keep that to yourself. It's like people said, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. I think the same should apply to this podcast because... I want to build positive momentum. And what better way to, to build some momentum than waving Damian Dotson and bringing in Denzel Valentine, a move that was rumored for a while, not the Dotson part. I mean, I guess we could have put two and two together in the sense that as we've approached training camp here, after the Lowry Markinen deal, there really was just a couple of spots that were being decided upon. Would we bring Hartenstein back? Or was Taco going to make the center rotation in his place, and then we're going to focus our efforts on a wing option, a Garrison Matthews, perhaps, or a Denzel Valentine. Well, Valentine was the one we went with, much to my chagrin. I would have preferred Garrison Matthews, but here's the thing. I don't want to present this in some massive negative viewpoint, because while I wouldn't have done exactly what the Cavs did, these are the roster spots that, barring some sort of catastrophic injury situation, should not matter. As excited as I was, and I say that modestly anyway, for Damian Dotson last year, when we signed him, I was like, oh, that's a good situation. Two years, very cheap. He had moments where he was with the Knicks where he filled in admirably, scored 20 points you know, over a span of multiple games when he got extended minutes. And as a backup backcourt option, I thought, well, you know what? This is a good move. Well, we didn't give that very long. We give it a year. He didn't blow anyone away exactly. I wasn't super disappointed or anything, but we needed a roster spot. He was the man that got bumped. And now this long-rumored union of Denzel Valentine and the Cleveland Cavaliers has come to fruition. Now, I don't feel wonderfully about Denzel Valentine as a player, but I will say that he is a guy that everybody said could do a little everything coming out of college. I remember coming out of college when he was at Michigan State, there were a lot of comparisons being drawn between him and Draymond Green. And that's mostly because of the institution. He was at Michigan State, but also because he played several years there. He didn't come out. He wasn't a one-and-done guy. He was a guy who put in his time at Michigan State. And he was an AP Player of the Year, Big Ten Player of the Year. I mean, this was a guy who definitely won basically everything you could win in college. And he was a guy who filled the stat sheet. His last season... At Michigan State, it was ridiculous numbers. Now, in the pros, that hasn't translated because, well, his efficiency has been abysmal. On top of that, he's had some injury issues in the last couple seasons. Now, last year, he was mostly healthy, 
played about 15 minutes a game, put forth modest averages, only six and a half, three rebounds, and two assists. What's really kind of held him back on the NBA level is he's one of the least efficient players you're going to see. This is a guy who shot under 40% over the course of his career, and it's been four seasons now. You could get by on that if the reason you're shooting under 40% is because you're taking exclusively three-point looks. But, unfortunately, he's only a 36% three-point shooter, so it's not as if he's just bombing away from three and shooting nearly 40%. This is a guy who really just isn't very impressive when it comes to his you know, true shooting or his effective field goal percentage. Over the course of his career, he's barely shot over 50% true shooting percentage, which is not wonderful. And if you look at his advanced stats, he's a negative on the offensive end significantly, and he's basically a break-even guy on you know defensive plus-minus. So not a guy who really moves the, the needle one way or another, but again, it's important to stress that this is not a guy who's probably going to be playing extended minutes. This is a depth option who will be playing you know two, three minutes, and hopefully guys like Okoro and even Osman, I would expect he has a hard time taking minutes away from Windler or Osman. I don't, I don't think this is a guy who's going to see the floor much. But really, the disappointing part of this is not that Dotson's out and he's in. Would I have taken Dotson over him? Probably. But we, we already know what Dotson is. I guess there's some hope that with health, Valentine can maybe live up to some of the promise he showed coming out of Michigan State. But now, that effectively ended the possibility of bringing back Isaiah Hartenstein. Because in this time period, after Valentine, shortly after Valentine, Hartenstein signed a training camp deal with the Los Angeles Clippers, who also brought in Harry Giles. So I don't know if he'll stick around there because you wouldn't assume that both those guys are going to make the Clippers roster. Now, could either one of them make it? Absolutely. I think they both have NBA rosterable talent. But how many centers do you really need? How many power forward slash centers do you really need? I mean, they've got Ibaka there. They've got Zubac. And then they're going to have to decide which of these guys do we want to keep on the roster because they have a lot tied up in these rookie wings. I mean, and, and guards. They have Preston. They have Boston. Uh, Keon Johnson. I mean, those are all guys who probably are going to get a look this year because with Kawhi out of the lineup, they have every incentive to see what they've got on the wing in one of these younger guys because while the Clippers won't say as much, they may be essentially just playing this out until Kawhi can return. Paul George will certainly do everything he can, but the West is loaded. I mean, as is the East, really. And nobody expects them to win a title this year. So they're going to get a chance to see what they have. And I would not be surprised at all if Hartenstein makes the roster. So the only other real move since the last podcast has been the deal they signed with Kevin Pangos, the former Gonzaga player who's been playing internationally uh, since his college career ended. He's almost 29 at this point, but he's coming back over from playing internationally where he averaged 14 and 7 while being uh, named all EuroLeague. So this was a guy who was definitely productive over there. Most intriguing is the fact that overseas, he's played a handful of years, six years, and his career three-point percentage is somewhere just shy of 42% from the floor. And this is a guy who's shooting a reasonable volume from outside over four attempts per game. So consistently been a threat from outside over the course of his career. Seems to be able to distribute some. 
He's more of one of those players who he may not have the high upside because he's already a you know a mature player, older than Larry Nance, who we just shipped off because he wasn't part of our core's you know youth movement. But perhaps a hedge against whatever the Cavs intend to do with Ricky Rubio this year. Now, me personally, I'm excited to have Rubio in the fold just to be a steady hand in the backcourt. And just as I feel with the front court, the backcourt needs a three-man rotation. Regardless of how I feel about Sexton and Garland, there wouldn't be a scenario where Rubio didn't see big minutes because those guys can't play them all, and I think Rubio can play alongside either one of them. He's a willing passer. He's a solid defender. In Pangos, you get an option who can knock down the three ball and seemingly is a capable distributor, capable of filling the minutes that a guy like Delhi did. Rubio's going to be the first guy off the bench, I presume. But who knows? There were rumors, Chris Fedor and others, suggesting that perhaps Pangos was an acquisition who could give the Cavs more options if they decide to move Rubio. Some of you may have seen this past week, Rubio made comments in regards to his fit with Cleveland. Here's the quote. I wish and I can hope I can play for a team one day that's playing for a championship right away. That's not the case right now, but I want to help this team get there someday. You could spin that negative. You could say, oh, you know, he's taking a shot at Cleveland or he's already expressing his desire not to be here. I don't really take it in a negative way because honestly, if that's how he feels, that's a justifiable thing. This is a guy who's been shipped around over the past few years, whether it be Oklahoma City, then to Minnesota, then to the Cavs. I mean, year after year, he's ending up on some of the worst teams in basketball. It's totally understandable that as he gets into the older portion of his career, where he's probably made his money, that he would want to compete. I just think it's honest, and I think it's understandable. So maybe he's communicated that to the Cavs privately. Perhaps an opportunity presents itself where we can send him somewhere where he's needed and recoup something in this the final year of his contract. Because we don't really know, as of now, what the Cavs see long-term with Rubio. I mean, he balanced out the Prince deal in a way that better served our roster, so that was an understandable flip to make. While there may be some of us who immediately then pencil in Rubio for, you know, five or six years as, okay, this is our backup point guard of the future, he may just be a stopgap who they don't intend to even try to re-sign for a lesser price following this season. This may be one of those situations where it's a move that made sense in the short term, and the long-term plan was always to just let Prince's money roll off, so maybe the same can be said for Rubio. And as we approach the trade deadline, if the Cavs find themselves out of it, they may be in a situation to flip him. Something like a Clarkson deal, where they look at him as productive, but not a guy that's in their long-term plan, so they try to get something or anything back for him. It's kind of early to make all that speculation happen. But signing Pangos to a two-year deal, that's a guard. Adding Valentine, that's a guard. Of course, Okoro's going to get minutes as the two. They have Sexton. They have Garland. We're going to know more in terms of the situation with Sexton's extension. I think an interesting development in the last week is that we need to be open to the idea that maybe Rubio is not even in the plans beyond this season and could possibly find himself on another team by the end of the 2021-2022 NBA season. Now, if Rubio communicated all that behind the scenes to the Cavs, he did it in the way that I wish Ben Simmons would communicate. Of course, it's an unrealistic expectation. Simmons is represented by Clutch. Simmons is also completely full of himself, presumably. Just based on his attitude and behavior and these stories that are leaking out, it certainly seems 
that the way Ben Simmons is handling his possible slash eventual slash inevitable departure from Philadelphia is one that is far less respectful than the way that Ricky Rubio is communicating that, hey, I kind of wish I had landed on a better team, but I'll make the best of it. That is not the tone that Ben Simmons is communicating. And we covered a lot of this last week, but I've had a whole nother week to just get annoyed. The Cavs fandom is definitely divided into the camp that wants Ben Simmons and thinks we should give up any and all things, whether that's Colin Sexton, Isaac Okoro, multiple first round picks, and then the section who just doesn't think whatever package it would cost us to acquire Ben Simmons is worth it considering his fit with the roster. I fall into the latter camp. I like Ben Simmons. I think he's a good player. I think he's an excellent regular season player. But there is something extremely troubling about watching a guy get to the postseason and become a totally different player in terms of his assertiveness, in terms of his willingness to take shots at big moments. Now, you've seen all the stats rolled out there. I'm not trying to pile on Ben Simmons, but the people who point to his, you know, all-world defense, I agree. Fantastic defender. There's nothing to back up the idea that when the playoffs roll around, that his offense will even be passable. This is a guy who, over the course of that entire series versus the Hawks, shot three times in the fourth quarter. Made them all, by the way, so, you know, tip of the hat to that. But from games four to seven, he didn't shoot a single time in the fourth quarter. Didn't take a shot, making $35 million a year. $35 million a year and 34% from the free throw line. A basically an impossible statistical achievement. More millions than percentages from the strike. Now, we have a huge chunk of the fan base who discredits Colin Sexton because offense is so easy to find. Meanwhile, we want to trade for a guy, commit $35 million of cap space to him, who cannot play offense in the playoffs, who cannot spread the floor, when we have a bunch of guys who already presumably are going to clog up the paint. Jared Allen is not a stretch big. Mobley, while a respectable jump shot form, he may be taking those shots because he's going to have a long leash. I think it's unrealistic to expect Mobley to come in and be a guy who's immediately shooting even 32-33% from three-point land on an NBA level. I'd be extremely excited if he did that as a rookie. But I think you're looking more like, oh, high 20%. And maybe over time, he can creep up to you know Larry Nance Jr. numbers from three-point land. But I think most of his jump shot damage is only going to be done out to 18 to 20 feet or so. So when you factor in Allen, Mobley, and Okoro, who, while I hope he takes a step forward, we just don't know yet how much better he's going to get from three-point land. The idea that we can just plop Simmons in, it's not without its problems. He's a tremendously talented player, but he should be for $35 million plus a year, for four more years, by the way. This is not someone you'll just flip and recoup whatever you gave up. This is a calculated risk that could easily blow up in your face. And you could be riding out another massive contract for just a younger guy than Kevin Love, who's equally unable to change the fortunes of a team by himself. We keep looking at Ben Simmons like he's this winner, but he's always been in a situation where he's blessed with a ton of talent. Not to mention that his personal shortcomings are a huge part of the reason why that team hasn't achieved to the level that everybody expected. You can't look at Joel Embiid and Tobias Harris and when they had Jimmy Butler and say, oh, that team couldn't have made it to the final. Sure, they could have. They had the talent to, 
But whether it be coaching shortcomings or perhaps we need to be open to the idea that Ben's very real playoff limitations were a big part of the reason that they in fact did not succeed. I think it's a little much to say just because Ben Simmons is an elite defensive player that that makes him the kind of team-raising player that can lift the Cavs to the playoffs. We just don't know that. Because while he is young, he's been in the league five years and he's shown signs of regressing, not continuing to improve. It doesn't seem like this guy is putting in a lot of work on his game. And I take all that with a grain of salt because, of course, when you're coming off of playoffs as bad as this last one was for him, where he shot below 35% from the free throw line, where he didn't shoot in the fourth quarter, it's always going to be more criticism than he probably deserves. I get that the truth is somewhere in between, but there are certain truths that I don't think are subjective at this point. I think you can look at the playoffs. I think there's a big enough sample now with three playoff runs where you've seen his warts exposed when teams define game plans defensively. And I expect him to continue to dominate in the regular season when people play wide open and guys get out and run in transition. He's phenomenal. And when there's no real stakes, he doesn't seem nearly as tentative offensively. But in these playoffs, he has been. And unless he fell into a shell because he had Joel Embiid, unless it just happens that when he gets traded to a team where he would be the most talented player on the roster, that he all of a sudden becomes assertive, which I think is asking a lot. Unless that's the case, then adding him to the Cavs doesn't necessarily solve anything. And if we're hedging on giving Colin Sexton $25 million, but we're ready to hand over Sexton, Okoro, multiple first-round picks, so not only are we going to send a ton of assets, but we're going to commit $10 million more on the cap to, to Ben Simmons? I don't know if I see that as the answer. I like Ben Simmons, but I think when people assess trades just on a baseline value of Simmons greater than Sexton, let's do the deal, that's not a fair way to evaluate the trade because the trade proposal is not Sexton for Simmons. There'd be other assets we'd be sending out, whether that be a Coro, whether that be Mobley, whether that be, let's say, two first-round picks. Is that something we really want to do? Did anyone know we were going to be drafting third? What if they go through another season of struggling and then they find themselves with a high lotto pick and it goes to the Sixers? Now, obviously, you know that's a chance, but are you really ready for that? Is the fan base really thinking in that mindset? Or are they saying, oh, when we get Simmons, we're a guaranteed playoff team? I don't think that's the case at all. But Simmons has had a much better roster around him. Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid, than the Cavs have right now. And I'm not saying the potential isn't there for Cleveland to get much better. But this idea that bringing in Simmons just on a talent basis alone and a fit basis solves all our problems, I think it's naive. We're immediately going to be getting rid of our best score in doing that. And our team was woefully bad on offense. Not to mention our spacing was the worst in the league. And we're taking a guy who's a respectable three-point shooter at 37%, closer to 40% over the course of his career. We're taking him and his 25 points a game out of it and throwing in Simmons, who can pass, but Garland can pass, Rubio can pass. I'm suspect of the deal. I, I will acknowledge this could be one of those things that I just need to see work and then I eat my words. I don't know that that's going to be the case. And the other thing I find extremely troubling about the Ben Simmons situation is the way that he's treating the Sixers. 
We're all too happy to take on a guy who, after getting $200 million from a team, is airing them out publicly, demanding to be moved before training camp, and saying that, and I'm going to, let me just play this clip. This is Brian Windhurst. This is a story that has been out there this past week. Uh, one of the messages that uh, Ben has sent back towards Philly is that it's not his job to fix his trade value. It's not his job to correct his trade value or raise his trade value. That is not something that is on the menu for him. And so with that out there, I don't think he's interested in coming in and trying to change the situation. It's not my responsibility to increase my trade value. It is if you want to be traded, Ben Simmons. At what point? Does $200 million come with any responsibilities? You're paid to perform. You're definitely paid to at least show up at a bare minimum. Maybe performance is something you can't guarantee. But attendance, that you can guarantee. Is $200 million not that responsibility at the bare minimum? You sucked in the playoffs. It is your responsibility to increase your trade value or to shut up, take the money, play, and earn your way into a situation where you can get some assets back and be moved to another team. Because you basically bone the Sixers, and now you're telling them, well, you know, it's not my fault. I burnt our house down. You gave me the matches. Now this is the guy. Now this is the guy that people want to bring into Cleveland, and we're hoping that, oh, this guy who can't be happy playing alongside the best center in basketball on a team that consistently goes to the playoffs, we're hoping that he's going to stay happy in Cleveland. With Rich Paul as his agent, mind you. Certainly doesn't seem to have a team's best interests at heart. And if he's willing to demand a trade one year into an extension, why wouldn't he be willing to demand another trade two years into the same extension just in Cleveland, Ohio? That's why you can't look at the deal as simply, Ben Simmons, better than Colin Sexton, pull the trigger. Colin Sexton, by all accounts, is a willing participant in Cleveland's culture. Simmons is unhappy in Philly. We don't know if he'll be happy in Cleveland. That's why I'm opposed to making a deal that's Saxton, Okoro, draft assets, some combination of those pieces. We're going to give away all the assets they've stockpiled, all the assets they're developing to bring in a clutch client who A, hasn't gotten significantly better, B, is on a gigantic contract, C, is represented by Rich Paul, who has a history of boning teams to get his players to bigger markets. Those are all things that we should see, and a giant alarm should go off saying, pump the brakes. I have another piece of audio I wanted to play. This is from the Big Shaq podcast, which I believe is now 25 episodes in, and I'm enjoying it. Uh, Shaq and Charles are always fun, and in the offseason, since we don't get them on TNT, a lot of times... What you get from Barkley is different comments in the media when he's making guest appearances on other people's shows. I thought Shaq had a, and while I generally like Charles more than Shaq in terms of his commentary, I did think Shaq had an excellent point regarding the differences between Ben Simmons and a guy like Giannis, who seemingly everyone loves now. Now, both guys somewhat suck at the line. Giannis way better at the line than Ben Simmons. Let me just make that distinction. But the difference is in the mental approach to how you overcome those struggles. And Shaq had the following to say. I was at that game six when that man didn't even look at the basket. I was there. And I know as a player, first thing I do is I look in the player's eyes. That man was out there terrified. And, you know, terrified, not terrified of playing, but terrified of being fouled and missing free throws. Forget all that. 
that's the same thing I told Giannis when I saw him. I said, look, man, forget that. Three things going to happen. You're going to make it, you're going to miss it, or you're going to shoot an air ball. But if you dominate, you dominate. Some of the time slash most of the time, free throws won't even matter. Completely agree with that sentiment by Shaq. I would much rather a guy try and fail than not try at all. And that's the frustration. And I mean, take a guy like Okoro. Coming into his second year, I want to see him take the three-point shots. I don't even care if he misses them. There's no guarantee of results, just like I said a few moments ago. Money doesn't guarantee performance, but it should guarantee an investment and engagement by the player. Now, Charles Barkley had this to say. I thought this was just a funny comment. The only reason I'm playing this, this is also from the Big Shack podcast, is just because I found it humorous, and I'm in the middle of this big diatribe about Ben Simmons, but I think Charles Barkley had a funny observation. Every day I'm walking the street, I have 20 people say to me, we got to get rid, rid of Ben Simmons. And I says, you know, I was just saying to myself the other day, I'm looking for a guy making $40 million who can't shoot, won't shoot. Those words ain't never been said before. <laughs> hey, hey, those words, hey, ain't no NBA team out there has been driving around. A general manager saying, hey, I got to pay a guy $40 million for the next four years, but he won't shoot. He's afraid to shoot. No, nobody's looking for him. We've reached some point where people think player movement and the freedom to go where you want to go comes without the obligation to honor your word and play up to a standard that justified you being paid $200 million. He did not have to extend there. He did. We're just into that extension, and he's already demanding to be traded. So if you want that to happen, if you want your freedom of movement, if you want your player empowerment in the way that allows you to say, I'm not happy here, I want to go elsewhere, and I want you to honor my wishes, and I don't care how it impacts you, show up, put in the work, make shots, work on your game. Don't spend your whole summer vacationing, presumably. I mean, it was the same criticisms we saw with Kevin Love. And whether you think it's justified or not, when people smashed Love for his, you know, summer of love, a lot of times fans will overlook that stuff if the results are there on the court. Now, is it reasonable? I don't know. I, I think it's easy to, to look at social media and assume that's a representation of everything that's happening. But then again, players are putting themselves out there more and more. You have Sexton constantly posting videos of him working in the gym and you know, I'm always grinding and the rock does the same stuff where it's like, ah, for, I'm in the iron paradise or whatever it might be. It, it's hard not to look at those things and then perception become reality and say, well, this guy is a guy who works. I would like to think a lot of these guys put in tons of work on their game that we just simply don't see. And maybe it's unfair in the situation of Simmons or Love to look at those guys, at least Love. Love wanted to play in the Olympics. Didn't work out, couldn't stay healthy, had to go home. Simmons, he opted not to do that anyway, coming off what was probably his worst postseason yet. Not probably, 100% his worst postseason yet. I have concerns for fit. I have concerns for attitude. I think the way that he's conducting himself is terrible. I do think ultimately he's going to get what he wants because here's one more interesting caveat to that story. And Winhurst pointed this out in the same report where he was talking about the meeting with the Sixers and Simmons where he said to them, it's not my responsibility to raise my trade value. Here's another interesting piece about Simmons' contract from Brian Winhorst. 
His contract is structured in a way that he's going to get half of his money by October 1st. 16 and a half million of his 33 million comes before he has to worry about getting fined a single dime uh, for, you know, 41 of his games. So he's going to have a war chest that he can just sit this out. So that contract essentially means he can play hardball if he wants to. I hope the Sixers, personally, also play hardball and just fine him into oblivion and send the message that, you know what, there has to come a point where NBA teams push back against players essentially bullying their way out of their rosters. I know people look at Houston and the Harden situation and say, oh, well, it worked out for Houston because they sucked so bad that they ended up getting the second overall pick, which got them Jalen Green, who seems like he'll be an excellent prospect. But I, I don't think you can look at trades in that context. The fact that they traded a guy like James Harden, an all-world player, and they got back picks. And they got back no real players of value. They got back Oladipo, who was gone. They got back guys who were going to be off the books immediately. And I know that may be what they wanted, but I would expect more for a player like James Harden. Unfortunately, coming in fat and lazy to begin the season, half-assing it, and then getting traded allowed them to just recoup the draft picks from the Nets. And I'm not smashing the Rockets here. I'm just saying those situations where a player signs huge money to a team over a long period of time and within a year or two is demanding out. And we have people like Draymond Green. Well, you know, players should have the right to try to be happy. Sure, they should. Nobody's disputing that. But all they're saying is, isn't it fair when you pay a guy $200 million, when you pay a guy $250 million, that within a year of that extension, he isn't ripping your team apart from the inside and destroying all of your trade value? Is that a reasonable expectation, Draymond? I do think it's okay to hold a player to a certain standard where, hey, it's totally okay to want to move elsewhere. It's totally okay to communicate those things to us. But there's a way, a respectful way of doing it. I think giving a guy $40 million a season should earn you enough respect for somebody to handle it behind the scenes. Because the moment they roll those out in front of the public, to the media, it drastically diminishes the trade leverage of the Philadelphia 76ers. And then they're being asked not just to let a guy leave, but to leave in a way that will bring them back nowhere near equal value in a trade. Because they're bent over a barrel that comes from the greed or inability to develop his game of Ben Simmons. Okay, I've got that all out. And I think that's pretty much all I have to say for today. This has been Episode 8, the Fear the Fro podcast hosted by me, Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio, at Fear the Fro Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please, if you enjoyed what you heard today, which you probably didn't if you're a Ben Simmons fan, it's not that I don't like Ben Simmons. Once again, to recap, Ben Simmons, good. Colin Sexton, good. Ben Simmons' attitude, terrible. I am scared to acquire Ben Simmons, who's a malcontent on a good franchise, to play here in Cleveland and expect him to lead a bunch of young, impressionable guys when seemingly he's A, lazy, B, disgruntled, C, represented by somebody who consistently makes moves that don't work in the best interests of franchises like Cleveland. Those are my concerns. And this is the Fear the Fro podcast. Okay, that's enough. Stop it!
did. This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.